The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Robert Jones says this about anger. Anger is a universal problem, prevalent in every culture, experienced by every generation. No one is isolated from its presence or immune from its poison. It permeates each person and spoils our most intimate relationships. Anger is a given part of our fallen human fabric. Sadly, this is true even in our Christian homes and churches. End quote. Now, most of us here would hear that statement and agree. Yes, we agree. Anger is prevalent. It is not good, and followers of Jesus are not immune to it. But anger also has this ordinary kind of ring to it, doesn't it? It's common. It's normal. It's frequent. No one gets in a panic over anger. No one goes to jail because of anger. But what if I replaced that quote that I read... What if I replaced anger with the word murder? Murder is a universal problem, prevalent in every culture, experienced by every generation. No one is isolated from its presence or immune from its poison. It permeates each person and spoils our most intimate relationships. Murder is a given part of our fallen human fabric. Sadly, this is true even in our Christian homes and churches. I say, wait a minute, that's that's just not accurate. Uh, Murder is different Altogether, it has major consequences. It's clearly outside the bounds of normal and ordinary. You know, if you're at care group this week and you confess murder, it's a little different than confessing anger. Or is it? What, what if the, the, the common and ordinary sin of anger was equal to murder? What if this far-off sin that we read about on the news and lands people in jail was actually regularly happening in our church, regularly happening in your family? Jesus describes murder as a symptom of a disease here, doesn't he? It's a symptom of the disease of sinful anger. So, friend, how seriously do you take your anger? How active are you in battling your anger? Um, And and how are you seeking to help those in your family or your church family to fight that battle? Is someone angry with you right now? Is there a break in a relationship in our church where anger is at work? How important is it that you seek to address this this broken relationship, to deal with your anger, what's causing it, how it's showing itself, what it says about you, what it says about me. As we study the Sermon on the Mount, we've come to the the body section, which is really anchored in Jesus' teaching that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And we saw last week that Jesus fulfills the law in at least four ways. He fulfills it prophetically, So being being an answer to all the promises and prophecies in God's word. He fulfills it obediently because he himself is the ultimate law keeper. He perfectly obeys God's law. 
He fulfills the law sacrificially. He pays the penalty the law demands for sin on the cross for the atonement of our sins. And then finally, we might say that he fulfills the law through explanation. He, he explains the clear meaning of the law. So, so not a dot or an iota is going to pass away. Jesus is bringing to bear the true meaning of the law. And we said last week that he fulfills that law actually for us. And by doing that, he enables us to go and obey God's word from our heart in this kind of new covenant sense, a new covenant obedience. And the result is a righteousness, Jesus says, that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so in the next few verses, he's going to give multiple illustrations of what that righteousness from the heart purchased by him on the cross looks like for his followers. And this first illustration deals with anger. So maybe you you can just put that into your memory bank. I think that's the first thing Jesus comes to. So if you're taking notes, there's there's a bulletin outline in in your bulletin. And the main point of the sermon uh, is this. Sinful anger is grievous grievous to God, and it must be urgently addressed through the reconciling gospel of grace. Sinful anger is grievous to God, and it must be urgently addressed through the reconciling gospel of grace. And I just want to make two observations this morning of our passage that is going to hold up that point. Number one, I want us to see the relationship between murder and the heart. We're going to see that in verses 21 and 22. Murder and the heart. And then secondly, we're going to see the relationship between the disciple and reconciliation. Verses 23 to 26. Murder in the heart and the disciple and reconciliation. My prayer is that this text won't just expose the severity and danger of anger in us, although I pray that it would. But by God's grace, it would give us an urgency to seek to root it out and to to seek reconciliation in those relationships that are affected by it in our lives. So let's start with Jesus' just shocking teaching that reveals the true heart behind that command, you shall not murder. So number one, murder and the heart. Murder and the heart. Just a quick word about the structure of what Jesus is kind of teaches as he goes through and teaches here. He's just said that, that we have this, disciples have this righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we said last week that was a righteousness that was different, not in quantity, but quality. So that Christians don't just simply say, well, now the Pharisees obeyed 430 laws. We're about, we're going to be about 440, 445. No, it's not just obeying in a, in a, in a kind of excessive way. But it's a, it's a qualitative difference from a new heart that has changed, been changed by the gospel. And so as Jesus go, kind of goes through and talks about each section, he's going to first give a statement from the Old Testament. And we'll see a statement that was, has been interpreted, particularly from the Old Testament. And then he's going to follow that by an explanation of the true meaning. An explanation of the true meaning. And then he's going to give application. So a good sermon outline right there. Right? He's going to talk about the Old Testament text. Here's the true meaning. Here's the application. And he's going to give at least six of these in this format. They're they're often called antithesis. There's six of them. But that word antithesis, it can mean contradiction. That's a little bit misleading. I don't want you to think that he's contradicting the Old Testament. He hasn't come to do that, to abolish it. He's come to fulfill it. But he's contradicting the interpretation of the Old Testament as taught by the scribes and Pharisees in the synagogue. So keep that in mind. As we come to verse 21, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. 
And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, you have read in the law of Moses. But he says, you have heard of old. So again, his focus is on the, the interpretation and the, the teaching which is really what the disciples are going off of. They, they seem to not have kind of a direct access to the, the text of Scripture for themselves, kind of think pre-me- pre-Reformation. Um, so we're, we're depending on, on what the, the, the teachers of the law disseminate to us, um, what the scribes and the Pharisees are telling us for our knowledge of the Scriptures. And, and their teaching was clear. Uh, those that commit murder will have to face judgment. You break the sixth commandment, you face judgment. That's the death penalty. But they, they sort of limit the command to the letter of the law, so to speak. So spilling of another's blood, you do that, you haven't kept the commandment. If you haven't done that, you have kept the commandment. And so viewing the law like that leaves the door open to all sorts of bad things that you could do to someone else. Well, I can't kill my brother, but I can bully them. I can maim them. I can verbally assault them. It's just like me saying to one of my kids, hypothetically, don't hit your sister. And then they proceed to pinch and elbow and do all sorts of other things verbally to their sister. Well, they, they have an argument that they've been totally obedient to my command. Um, but the question is, am I pleased with them? Well, absolutely not. They've totally missed the point, And now they're in big trouble, Right? That's, that's kind of the picture of what's happening. And so Jesus transitions from what you have heard taught to what I say unto you. It's a very significant transition. Jesus sets himself up as the clear authority on, on God's word. He, he doesn't even point to a text, but simply speaks. This is why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, just flip over chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus is done... And when he had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus shows this this authority. He's claiming authority over the scribes and the Pharisees, not just as a better teacher, a better interpreter, but as the author himself. I'm the one who gave the law of, of Moses to Moses. I know it's true intent. And I've come to fulfill it, to make it clear to you. And so he says this here in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You may have a footnote there in verse 22. um, That footnote around that word anger that, that says this is anger without cause. Um, and this is most likely a later addition added by a scribe who was reading the Sermon on the Mount and said, surely he doesn't mean all anger. So we must, we must insert this without cause piece, which is not a bad insertion. But I just think it's interesting when we bring up the topic of anger uh, in Scripture, we, click, we sort of quickly go to this idea of righteous anger. So, well, not all anger is bad. Surely some anger, hopefully, hopefully it's the anger that I have, is okay. And so that's a little bit of what we need to kind of think through. Even as we start in this, this teaching on anger, the Bible does show examples of righteous anger. Um, God, for example, is, is angry with sin. 
and wrathful toward sin. Jesus shows anger when he, he runs away the money changers from the temple and even calls the Pharisees fools at times. And so, you know, we, 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 that's where we go, right? We go to the sinless son of God and say, well, Jesus did these things and therefore my anger is justified. When we think about righteous anger, friends, we're thinking about anger that arises against true evil against God. So the violation of God's law, it focuses on, on God and his will, not on me and my will. It's also a controlled anger, not losing my temper or lashing out in, a, in sort of vengeful spite. Or does that describe your anger? If we're honest, we'll say probably not. I don't want to put a percentage on it. But the overwhelming majority of our anger is rooted actually in our selfishness. It's rooted in our pride. We can't have something that we think we want or need, or we've been made to look bad by someone or not good enough. And so we get angry. Even when we point to someone else's actions against us, As the cause of our anger, we fail to to see that Jesus teaches the real cause of anger is your heart. There may be occasions for anger to sort of draw that out of your heart. There may be temptations that draw that out. But the source is is our heart. So, So people don't cause us to be angry. Jesus says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So Jesus describes this anger here in verse 22 as being against a brother. Which, this doesn't open the door for us to be angry at non-brothers, non-disciples. We'll see that more as we study the Sermon on the Mount. But it does, I think, have a particular emphasis on the relationships between brothers and sisters in a family, especially God's family. And so Paul says to the Galatians, Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. So there's a sense in which, yes, we need to be, we we need to have this, this, this ministry and witness to everyone. And then particularly with those that are of the household of faith. The manifestations of anger that Jesus describes here. Notice he says, um, he uses the word insults which is this, this Aramaic word, raka, that you've probably heard before. You may have a footnote there, which is this abusive word that means empty or empty-headed. So, you know, blockhead or you're a dimwit or an idiot. That would probably be our, our modern word. Um, so, so, you know, as we go through these things, maybe wherever you find yourself struggling with anger, I find myself in the car in Houston traffic. And these words rise up. The word you fool uh, denotes more than just being unintelligent, but spiritually stubborn. Uh, Someone who is rejecting God. It's the word moros, which is where we we get our word moron. And as Jesus goes through this list, I don't think he's given us gradations of, if you call your brother this, you're going to face this. If you call your brother this, you're going to face this. I don't think that's what he's doing, not giving levels of sin and levels of, of punishment. He's simply making the same point and illustrating it kind of three different ways. Uh, and the point is, anger is murder, and it condemns us to God's judgment. 
Anger is murder, and it condemns us to God's judgment. Not just human judgment. So when he says, if you're angry at your brother, you'll be liable to judgment. Well, nobody's coming to your house to arrest you for being angry. So he doesn't mean worldly human judgment, does it? He means eternal judgment, judgment by God. That phrase, the hell of fire, that's a reference, uh, the word is Gehenna, which is a reference to this valley of Himnon, uh, which is infinite, infamous for, for being in the Old Testament where the, the human sacrifices of Moloch were offered. Jeremiah called it the place of slaughter, the valley of slaughter, and prophesied that birds would feed on the exposed corpses of the dead there. This is the place that Isaiah describes in Isaiah 66, 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. When Jesus talks about hell, he quotes Isaiah 66, 24. He describes hell as a blazing furnace. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He uses phrases like eternal fire. Anger puts us on the road to hell. John says it this way, 1 John 3.15, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So brother or sister, Christian, here this morning, are you taking your anger seriously? Maybe that just begins with acknowledging it acknowledging it, not just to yourself, but to God, maybe to your spouse, your family, a friend. You know, anger shows itself for us in many different ways. For some, it's just pretty obvious, like, okay, that guy's angry. We, we don't have to, to, to do any investigation. Yelling, physically slamming things around, a verbal abuse directed at others. Okay, anger. For others, it's more of an internalization, isn't it? A seething over something that was done to us or said to us. It looks like silence, uh, neglect of a certain person, uh, withdrawal from a relationship. And for you need to know, anger is never static. It doesn't just sort of stay there like, okay, you stay in this little box and you're going to be my anger. No, it, it, it doesn't do that. It's always going somewhere if it's allowed to function in your life. And so resentment is just anger that we've been holding on to and not dealing with. And it develops into resentment. We, we keep it inside and we nurse it. And then we nurse resentment until it develops into bitterness. And bitterness is just basically resentment that's grown into kind of long-term animosity. It's just been around for a long time. And it's still there and growing. So you might even say, well, you know, I've forgiven that person, but I don't want to have anything to do with them anymore. I don't know that you've forgiven them. And bitterness can, can develop into, into hostility then uh, to a person over time. And that can go into strife, kind of an outward show of this open conflict between two parties. Friend, I wonder if you have anger against someone today, someone in your family, Someone in our church. I wonder if you're trying to rationalize it. Maybe you rationalize it by focusing on what's been done to you. And let me just stop right there and make a, make a caveat. 
Um, I am not in any way minimizing hurts that have been done to you. Um, Some of you have been hurt severely, and particularly maybe physically, or you've been hurt verbally. If you're in a position right now where you're being hurt in these ways, you need to come and let others know. You need to let us know. You need to let the authorities know. There's no, there's no excuse for that. There's no, no, no way to hide that and justify that. And if you've been through that, we need to understand that working through that is going to take time through biblical pastoral counseling. And you need, to, you need to get involved in that. We'd love to talk to you more about what that would look like. So I'm not minimizing in any way that that's true. But sometimes we can, we can rationalize the anger by, by simply focusing on what's happening to us or happened to us instead of how we are going to deal and respond to it. Sometimes we rationalize by saying, look, this is just how I'm wired. It's just how I'm wired. I, that's how I deal with things. If you only knew what I had to put up with, you would be angry too. Maybe you've written somebody off in your life, written them off in, 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 in bitterness, have you, have you thought about maybe what, what it is at the bottom of your anger? What's making you angry? Have you thought that it could possibly be an idol? It could be an idol of convenience that you have or control that you have or maintaining a certain reputation or expectation or selfish need or, or ambition that you have. And when someone comes and threatens to take away that idol or tarnish that idol, we get angry. Or maybe we just respond to someone else's anger with a higher level of anger. Jesus is just calling out our anger for what it is. It's not ordinary. It's not common. It's not normal. It's not something to be tolerated. It's, it's deadly. It's poisonous. It's murder. Uh, James says, uh, James 1, 19 and 20, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So brothers and sisters, let me just give you three quick encouragements as you think about anger. And, and these are things that I think we're tempted to forget when anger flashes on us. Okay, Number one, when you're tempted toward anger or holding on to anger, I want you to, to consider the sovereignty of God. Consider the sovereignty of God in your situation that's causing you anger. To, to, and what I mean by that is to know that God is in control of all things, I believe that. It's in the statement of faith. But that would include the thing that just made me angry. That would include that thing too. And here I just think of Joseph's, Joseph's words to his brothers who, listen, sold him into slavery. So that's a bad day. That's deep hurt. Sold him into slavery in Egypt. And he says, it wasn't you that sent me here. It was God. Genesis 45, 8. God sent me here. As a believer, we know that although someone's actions against me might be sinful, they're not outside of the providence of God. And in fact, God intends to use that situation for our good. That's why Joseph can say, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. God meant it. He wasn't surprised by this development. So actively reflecting on the sovereignty of God is just a, a great strategy, I think, to, to help diffuse our anger. Actively reflecting um, on, the sovereign, on the sovereignty of God is, is the great, a great way to diffuse your anger. The other day I was in the refrigerator getting something out 
and uh, the refrigerator was packed. And I tried to get out a bowl or something. And on the other side was a smoothie cup that was glass filled to the top of smoothie. I'm trying to get this thing. The refrigerator's packed. And so as I do it, the smoothie cup comes off. All right. So you have to imagine it coming off and it's full. And I try to grab it like this, which causes it to spill and then spill kind of all the way down. So it spills on every little, every basically thing in the refrigerator got smoothie on it. Every nook and cranny smoothie in the door, everything. And then at the very bottom, it breaks and shatters. So glass is everywhere. Smoothies everywhere. My response was not to sing the doxology at that point. Um, my response is to look to see who, who packed this thing so full. This is certainly not my fault. And I just loved Alicia's response as she's helping me clean it up. A loving wife. So you know what? I would have never been able to clean these dirty parts of the refrigerator and if you hadn't spilled that smoothie. Wow, that's a great attitude. Was it my attitude? So that's just a silly example, but, but hopefully the reality, the truth is we want to consider the sovereignty of God. Secondly, um, consider your calling from God to radically love others. God places in our lives um, I would just recommend, um, I'm, I'm borrowing some of these things from Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins. He's got a chapter on anger. It's just super helpful. Jerry Bridges, The Respectable Sins. Um, he says, Peter says this in 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So consider your calling of God to radically love others. Love covers a multitude of sins. Think about that in the gospel sense. God has covered a multitude of sins with us through the love that he's shown in Christ. And now we're to love others. And, and, and we're going we're to seek to love them and, and by the way that we've been loved in, in Christ. It's a love that is shown to us in Jesus. It radiates out to others from us. And this has to be pursued. I don't think this is just a, a thing we wake up and we do easily. It worked at, strengthened, um, Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Paul says, Love is not easily angered or irritable. 1 Corinthians 13.5 Love keeps no record of wrongs or is not resentful. 1 Corinthians 13.5 If you have a mental list of what others have done against you, that's the opposite of loving that person. Keeping a mental list of what they've done against you. You're feeding bitterness and resentment and letting anger have a foothold in your life. Burn the list. Get rid of the list in Jesus' name. If we're marked by love, we're able to overlook and, and love others based on the love we've received in Christ, which we did not deserve. And that leads to just the third thing I'll say quickly. Walk in forgiveness. And we'll say more about this later as we study the Sermon on the Mount. We are to be, as Jesus' disciples, marked as a forgiving people. Colossians 3.13, we're to be bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. It's one of the best ways to walk in these encouragements is to join a local church where, where God's word is preached, his grace and sovereignty are embraced, and we're, we're all encouraged to love one another and we will let each other down. And so we have opportunity to forgive one another and to, to, to look past things that are done to us. Our love for one another and our turning away from anger and resentment and walking in forgiveness, it gives weight to our testimony as a people. 
1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Friends, do you, do you love your brother? Are you, are you committed, covenanted together with others that you're going to love in the name of Jesus? Well, that takes us, I think, to the, to the application section in Jesus' teaching here on anger. And he gives two application points that are drawn from this truth. I think one is for the church, in a sense, the people of God, and one as it relates to an outsider. So number two, the, the disciple and reconciliation. The disciple and reconciliation. And, and the point here of this application section is to show how Jesus' disciples are to urgently pursue reconciliation with others. That others would be kept from the sin of anger against us. So first, Jesus gives a very practical example related to worship. So verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So, Jesus says, that's the word he uses to transition. So, I've given you this truth about, about anger and murder. Here's how it practically works out. He gives us a modeled kind of theology. In the context here, someone offering an animal sacrifice on the altar. You find yourself at that altar. You're about to you're hand your animal over to the priest to be sacrificed. And then you remember your brother has something against you. Leave. Go immediately and be reconciled. You might think it would read that if you have something against your brother, go and be reconciled. But it's the other way around. It's an encouragement to think about how others are tempted to be angry because of you. It's looking outside of yourself toward the good of your brother, which I think assumes you're, you're, you're already looking at an internal, the internal situation. This is not an easy thing to do. Um, the inconvenience of this, I think, passes us. But if you think about the people listening to Jesus, many of them would be from Galilee, so which that would be about 80 miles away from Jerusalem, where the sacrifice would be made there in the temple. So you've already made that journey with your animal. And then you go wait in line with your animal. And when it's your turn to get in line, then you remember, you get this conviction, which makes sense. You're in this offering in place of sin and and you're thinking about those things, and you remember someone has something against you, well, what do you do? Well, just put it out of your mind. I mean, seriously. But no, you, you take this animal and bind its legs and leave it there. And then you go travel, the, say, 80 miles back to Galilee and seek reconciliation, offer restitution if needed to an offended brother, then go back the 80 miles to Jerusalem and complete the sacrifice. This is a consistent practice in Old Testament law. If you look at Leviticus 6 and Numbers 5, you, you see, see it clearly happening there. These instructions centering it on the heart, making restitution with a brother that you've offended, true worship being lived out in your life, not just what you do openly. And God's not interested in sacrifices that people are actively sinning against one another and not making it right. So, beloved, there's, there's a primacy here to reconciliation with your brother that comes even before the worship of God. So God isn't interested in our heartless observances when we're hating others. He says, go, go make it right with your brother first. Think about, think about Cain's offering in Genesis 4. 
right? It wasn't accepted by God. God, God sees the heart of the offering of Cain. Maybe it's this anger, jealous heart that's there. It's exposed by God. And what does Cain do? He immediately gets angry. Genesis 4, 5. And then what does that anger lead to? The first murder in the world. And God isn't fooled or pleased by hands that would be raised to him in worship that if they had the opportunity would strangle their brother. I just hope you see the link between our vertical relationship with God and the horizontal relationship with others. It's not a compartmentalized faith that we're, we're talking about here. Think about Peter's encouragement toward husbands just as an example. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, you probably know this verse already. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. People have always been inclined to substitute ceremony for integrity and purity and love, but, but Jesus has none of that. He says, go, first be reconciled, and then offer your worship to God. So, brother and sister, just the clear question from the text. Does someone have something against you? Notice Jesus doesn't qualify the statement too much in, in order to presume guilt, although it seems that the something against you would be there's something that, that you've done, but not necessarily. Have you done, maybe a better question is, have you done all that's in your power to bring about reconciliation? As Paul says in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Think of it as preventing your brother from committing murder. Loving them and seeking reconciliation, which reflects the gospel reconciliation that we've received. Friends, that's not easy. It it takes initiative on our part. It takes humility on our part. An inclination to listen and to be slow to make things, um, or or quick actually, to make things right from, from us, our part. So, brother or sister, do you need to go today? Do you need to get up and leave? You have my permission to do that. Jesus' permission to do that. Go make it right. It's as if God says, I'll wait. I don't need you to be here right now. You you need to be reconciled with your brother so that your worship isn't this hypocritical show. That's Jesus' first application. Let, Let each man examine himself, his, his relationships. That what we're doing together as we gather is a, a true sign of unity and reconciliation in the gospel. Then his second application point uh, comes right after that. He deals with an accusation here of what seems to be a defaulting of some kind of loan, apparently with an outsider or an accuser. So again, reconciliation is the responsible of, of, of a believer here in this situation as well. And it, notice how urgent it is. Verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. A person here who has defaulted on his debts, they could be thrown into debtor's prison. Uh, and you, you would have to be there until your, your bill was paid. And just, it's just tough because while you're in prison, what can't you do? You can't work to make money, to pay off the debt. So it's this seemingly hopeless situation. 
Jesus says, don't even wait until the court begins. Meet your accuser on the road and work out a plan then to settle the debt. If you don't do that, you'll, you'll be turned over to the jurisdiction of the court and be locked up until the last cent is paid. Again, this doesn't sound like a, a frivolous lawsuit. Nor is Jesus saying that we must always be a doormat if we're accused of wrongdoing. Of course, if you're innocent and being trying to take advantage of, the story is different. We want to use wisdom. But the message is clear. Seek reconciliation urgently. Make things right. And friends, Jesus says this is even with outsiders. We're, we're to be peacemakers. To urgently seek to prevent others from having a charge against us or from anger towards us. And the longer we hold on or hold out to settle, the worse the fine will be. Uh, the, I'm not an attorney, but if you settle before you go to court, the lighter the fine usually. But if you stubbornly draw it out, the punishment could be much, much worse. Well, I think the same is true with the relationships. Don't wait to argue your case before the judge. Um, maybe don't wait to argue your case at all. More than winning an argument and proving finally that you were right all along, we ought to be those that seek to win people. Not to wait and, 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 and seek reconciliation, but, but to go immediately and do it because when we wait, things don't get better. They get worse. Bitterness takes hold. Anger settles in. Communication becomes less likely. And the enemy gains a greater foothold. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Paul's not commanding us to be angry there. I think he's assuming that when you're angry, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give in to nurturing that, that anger. Deal with it immediately, urgently, by God's grace. Friend, how do you need to respond to this call of urgency in reconciliation? Are you estranged with someone and it's still unresolved? Where have you been moving slowly instead of urgently on that path to reconciliation? Jesus says that his disciples are those that need to go and make things right because they've been made right with God. So clearly here we see God's righteousness is not a kind of external, kind of not doing the big bad sins in life, but God's law is meant to reveal our hearts and our desperate need for grace. And so friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just want to thank you for being here. We're so glad that you're here. I hope that you'll stick around some after church and get to know people and get to, get to be around the folks here at our church. And I hope that you'll think about the words that Jesus is saying. Think about them really carefully. We have a tendency to compare ourselves with other people. This is just the way we are as sinners. And then that leaves us feeling pretty good. But the more you read about Jesus, the more you read about his teaching and who he was, he begins to destroy that mindset. We think, after all, I haven't killed anybody. Like my problems, I've got problems, but they're not hurting other people. But Jesus shows us that actually we haven't been able to keep even the one that we thought we could keep. The, like this is the one we got. Don't murder. Now this passage just shows us the depths of our sin. Not just what we do, but it's who we are. It's inside of us. Even our thought lives condemn us before God. If you've ever harbored an, an angry thought towards someone else, much less, much less just lashed out in anger, you're guilty, Jesus said, of murdering them. 
But the crime is even deeper than kind of what we would think of in those terms. Actually, against an eternal God. And it requires not earthly justice, but eternal justice. God's wrath against sin, against us, apart from any relief. And that's what hell is. Hell is in the Bible. Jesus speaks of it more than anyone else. It's very real. And our anger, even a thought, condemns us to hell forever. And I hope you see that as your real situation. And, and even maybe just hearing that causes, causes anger to come. But we need to know that it's the truth. It's the truth of God's word. But it's not the end of the story. Yes, you have broken God's law. I have broken God's law. Everyone in this room has. But Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law. I've come to obey in your place. Think about the way he does that just in terms of anger. Yes, there were some moments when Jesus was righteously anger. But in the moments in life that would spark anger from us, from you and I, that's when we see the difference between Jesus and us. Jesus was unjustly accused. Jesus was arrested. Jesus was unfairly tried. Jesus was illegally beaten. He was spit on. He was crucified. He was mocked. He was humiliated. He was stripped away from his family, from the people he loved the most. His disciples left him. And Peter says of Jesus, 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The only thing that came out of Jesus' mouth, those words in Luke 23, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do you believe that God has answered that prayer that Jesus prayed? God, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is not a sermon about just you not trying not to be angry. This is a sermon about how much we need Jesus. We can have forgiveness from our anger and sin against God because of Jesus' sinless life and atoning death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. And if you would turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ, you can be saved, you can be made righteous and made new because Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. And now he enables us to walk in newness of life, to walk in love, not in anger. I'd love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to trust him. Won't you come to him? Won't you believe in him? Christian, this morning, won't you worship him? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you died even for the angry. Thank you that you provide hope for us and you loved us enough to give your life for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we examine our own hearts. You know, that's not a fun exercise. But Lord, we pray that it would be fruitful and that it would be 
characterized by grace, that it would be grace that even brings us to the point of repentance, and it would be grace that brings that repentance to fruition and and grace in which we run to, and grace in which we extend to other people who wrong us. And Lord, we just, we confess we need you for this. Individually, we need you for this. As a church, we need you for this. I pray that you would be doing a work, Lord, all over this place in reconciling one to another and, 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 and causing us to be those that run out and seek reconciliation. And we would proclaim the good news in the way that we love others. So even in these just quiet moments, Lord, we pray you'd continue to, to work and apply your word to us by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the Great Commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.